Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to our show. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters. All of these books are available at Amazon in paperback and ebook format. Also, if you're an audiophile, you can pick up volumes one through six at Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. So do take advantage of that. And if you're into a little extra creep, check out my three-book series, The Exorcists. The first one is called Truth and Lies, the second, Diabolica, and the last, Full Moon. So I encourage all of you to purchase a book And now, without any further ado, may I bring in my brother and co-host, K.J. Sheehan. Kevin, how are you? I'm good. How about you, Bill? Pretty good, Kev. You know, we we were talking before the broadcast. I was out rebuilding that shed today, Mm. and it was quite a beast to deal with. Similar, The Bigfoot of sheds. I was going to say, you don't have like a Bigfoot body inside (laughs) of that shed, do you? I tell you, I could have used a Bigfoot, Bigfoot's energy today. Because <laughs> you know what they say, where's the body? Yeah. Well, it's in the shed. There was almost <laughs> me and my friend Danny's bodies left in the shed by the time we were finished. Uh, now, was the weather nice and cool at least today? Yeah, no, it's gorgeous. I mean, we yeah. had a couple of days of rain and wind and uh, it broke. And it's just a spectacular uh, October day uh, up here today. Yeah, we went out on the boat today, and uh, it was pretty nice. It was like sunny, light breeze, but big puffy clouds, and a little chilly, but nice, you know. Yeah, well, next week we're going to get out and uh, bag a few stripers. I heard from some of my friends that live up by you that they are there are some monsters swimming around. Yeah, well, I hope I get into the monsters. You know, monst- <laughs> monsters are more out at Orient and uh, Montauk. Okay. And uh, some areas of the uh, reef, artificial reefs along the South Shore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean there can't be monsters where I fish, you know. But typically, yeah. that's where guys are bagging the real big boys. Yeah. Cool, man. Cool. Yeah, absolutely cool. So what do you got up your bag of tricks there today, my brother? Yeah, today in cryptids and other oddities, we are going to talk about crop circles. Oh, uh, yeah. Crop circles are really cool. They are cool. And honestly, we could probably do a few shows on crop circles. So I'm going to try to hit some some of the more interesting stuff that I came across. Yeah, and, uh, this has been going on for a long time, Kev. I mean, uh, going way back, I mean, you know, 150 years, they used to call them the devil circles. and Yeah, they actually, they have this wood carving, which I'll put a picture of it on our website, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Um, which, you know, you've probably seen um, where it's got this uh, like devil like creature going around in a circle with a, uh, uh, you know, cutting utensil, some type of uh, wheat cutting uh, utensil. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of walking along, chopping the stuff down in a circle. And what's interesting is he's starting from the outside. And working his way around toward the center clockwise, which is kind of exactly what these primitive crop circles look like. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know about you, but uh, speaking for myself, which who else would I be speaking for? 
I've been following the crop circle uh, phenomena for a long time, and I'm just, like, fascinated by this stuff. It is pretty cool. So, uh, And this one, this carving, by the way, it, it appeared in 1678. Yeah, that's a good long time ago. That's a good long time ago. And when you see it, it's kind of, you know, you can tell the direction he's going and stuff. It's pretty cool. And, uh, um, you know, so the the story that goes along with this woodcut, so I'm going to read it to you, right? So Mm -hmm. it says, being a true relation of a farmer, so it's a bit of old English, right? Right. Who who bargaining with a poor mower about cutting down three half acres of oats. Upon the mowers asking too much, the farmer swore that the devil should mow it rather than he. And so it fell out. That very night, the crop of oats... Shooed as if it had been all of a flame, but next morning appeared so neatly mowed by the devil or some infernal spirit <laughs> that no mortal man was able to do the like. <laughs> I, I love that word infernal. I know it's pretty cool. So this is called right. You'll you'll hear about it. They call it the mowing devil legend. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it's cool, cool stuff. Yeah, very interesting. And that was from the late latter part of the 1600s? Yeah, 1678. And by the way, this creature in the wood carving has like horns and a little tail, you know, like the classic uh, uh, devil Satan image. Right? Yeah, yeah. So he was, yeah. in the story anyway, he was like cursing the fact that he had to do this, right? Well, he was cursing the fact that his... Uh, person who usually mows the uh, the crops was charging him too much. Right, right. So he like called out like I'd rather pay the devil, and then apparently like the devil showed up and yeah. mowed his field. Or it could have just been conveniently that night his field got mowed. Yeah, or his buddy set it on fire <laughs> for complaining to him. <laughs> But it's pretty cool. Yeah. No. So that goes all the way back to 1678. And then the first modern one that people talk about was in a small town called Tully, Australia. And this happened in 1966, so about 54 years ago. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about this one? I have not. Okay, so this is pretty cool. So a farmer said that he saw a flying saucer oh. rise up from a swampy area and then fly away right past him. And when he went out there to look at where he saw the flying saucer take off from, he saw a cir- circular area of debris and reeds and grass that were completely flattened out in a perfect circle. Hmm. And uh, he reported it to the authorities, the police, the press, and uh, they came out and they verified that he did see it. And the press wrote about it as a flying saucer nest, huh. kind of like a bird's nest. Yeah. And that, I mean, that I could see that, of course, it's a circle, right? A, cr- a crop circle or a grass circle. Right. But that was actually like a landing site. That's what they're saying. Yeah. You know, but uh, now, of course, there were some folks that came in afterwards and said, you know, this might have been caused by some type of natural phenomena like, you know, a water spout or, you know, what we call a dust devil, you know, not to be confused with the mowing devil. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I get it. Yeah. Like something spun up and touched down exactly. for a moment. Touched down and knocked down all of the grass and made it flat in a circle. Right, right, right. Could be, but kind of odd that it didn't move, you know, that it just touched down and didn't move at all along the ground and just had this round, perfect circle. And of course, of course, uh, the choice is believing that a dust devil just sat down and totally discounting the fact that the guy just said, I saw a flying disc there that took off and went right by me. Exactly. It's, and then it, when he went to investigate where he saw the flying disc, then he saw this, you know, crop circle, right. right? Early crop circle. It's just, I like to be sarcastic, Kev, because there's like no end to the rebuttal, irregardless of what people say. Well, I was just happy that they didn't say it was from a bear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a dancing bear was going in a circular. Well, and maybe the flying saucer you saw was really a bear. 
<laughs> the poor bear always gets the rap. He does get the rap. You know? uh, so, yeah. uh, so after that sighting in 1966, we started to see them appearing in the 1970s, mostly in the English countryside. Yeah. So over in the UK. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the number and complexity of the circles. So initially they showed up and they were circles, you know, like a single circle or two circles. And then, of course, all of our listeners have seen some of the crazy elaborate designs that, you know, have shown up in these fields and huge, too. You yeah. know, thousand feet across with all kinds of crazy geometry. And, uh, you know, what's really interesting is is they they appear all over the world, but certainly more than anywhere they show up in the U.K. countryside. And in the 1990s, about 700 of them showed up in the U.K. And they went up in both number and complexity, really without any ex- explanation. Right. So how many pre- how many was there, Kev? About 700 during the 1990s, just in the U.K. Yeah. So let's say let's just say a nine year period. Yeah. Uh, 700 on the button. Let's just say it was 700 on the button. So you have about, uh, what would it be, uh, 9, 7, 80, uh, maybe 80, 75 or 80 a year? Yeah. So that was some busy people with boards tied to their feet <laughs> uh, all over the U.K., you yeah. know, knocking out one every, uh, you know, whatever it was, four days, five days. I mean, it's just bizarre because a lot of people were saying that. Well, there's definitely folks that have come forward, right? You know, with the boards, and there's pictures of them, and and some of the first guys that came forward were two guys, and they were in their sixties, yeah, and they actually demonstrated how they could make one, and it was kind of believable. But these were pretty simple designs, you know, and I think there's no doubt that some of these are made by you know pranksters or hoaxsters, and there's even organizations. Right, that you could find on the internet that go out and get a whole bunch of people together, kind of like a social thing, mm-hmm. and figure out how to make a big design, and they go out in the dark of night and make a design. Yeah, but how, they publicize that they did it, right? You know, like because so. they they want to spoof everybody who's seen something legitimate. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And they got it's, too much really, free time. Really, it's no different than people who go out in a Bigfoot suit and then take a picture of themselves taking the, the head off. Like, uh, uh, we fooled you. No, you didn't. We thought it was a guy in a suit, and there you are. No, it's the same same exact thing. Yeah. You know, some percentage of the stuff we see is definitely, uh, you know, hoaxers. Yeah. It's the way it is. Well, I'd like you know. to see any group of people knock off that Julia set in a couple of hours in the English countryside. Have you seen that exactly. one? I have seen it, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's Where, just magnificent. Yeah. yeah, and then the other thing is, you know, All of these going on, right, you know, the 700 in the 90s in the UK and, you know, relatively small area of countryside. No one's ever seen anyone doing this, you know, which is pretty interesting. And usually they are close to population or close to a road or below like a, a road that's slightly elevated so that people can see them. Yeah. Right. And uh, it is interesting that no one's ever seen them. Now, the designs like you were talking about the Julia set, I think what's really interesting is that a lot of the designs involve what's known as the golden ratio. Have you heard of that before? I haven't. Go ahead. Yeah. So the golden ratio is a ratio of about one to one point six eight. But what's important about the golden ratio, if you think of like a, uh, if you're looking at the end, the big end of a conch shell straight on. Okay. And you see that spiral or like a nautilus shell. Right. um, That's known as the golden ratio. So it's kind of, it shows up everywhere in in nature as uh, a beautiful geometric ratio. Like, for example... And I'll put this on the website as well. If you look at a beautiful rose looking straight down on it, right, just with a single rose, it also follows the golden ratio, its shape. Mm -hmm. Like if you follow the petals, how they spiral into the center, 
it's exactly the same as like a Nautilus shell or a conch shell or, you know, these thousands of things that appear in nature that are always beautiful and special. They follow this ratio. How about like a spiral galaxy? Similar. Very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, inter- it's interesting, though, because uh, these patterns in nature are not accidental. No, and they, by the way, you see these patterns going all the way back in human time, too. Yeah. Like in drawings and things like that. You see these, these, uh, these, um, this ratio being drawn in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And some people call it sacred geometry. So it's kind of, that's also why, like, one of the rationalizations for the, when these crop circles appear, Sometimes people go into the field and they feel something special by being there. Yeah. Not just because they're seeing it, but it's almost like there's an energy there. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, and some people believe it's related to the golden ratio. You know, some people think it's just because, of course, there's a bunch of people there who think it's something special, so then you feel something special. And that could be true, too. But one of the scientific reasons is that it could be related to the golden ratio. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Yeah, well, which I think is I think is super cool, right? Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. And uh, you know, uh, many people like to discount the divine nature of things, right? But it's really incredible. I mean, this is just another example of, however, it happened that this ratio, this golden ratio, would be part of the happening. Yeah, very, uh, very interesting, you know. Uh, how, yeah, now, how, uh, you know, so I promised you I'd hit the, the what I think are the coolest things. So definitely, you know, the fact that this, this golden ratio appears in a lot of these designs, like the one you referenced. Um, and then I thought, you know, being being a guy that loves the stars, right, you know, and the planets and the, the heavens like you, Bill, when I was reading about it, um, one of uh, the guys we talk about sometime, right, uh, in terms of uh, space research is Carl Sagan. And in 1974, Carl Sagan sent a uh, kind of a unique radio message, you know, like in a very simple format built around like binary code so that it was kind of designed so that any creature that might hear it at some point in the solar system should be able to figure out in some way, shape, or form what this message means. Right. Right? Have now, you heard about this? Yeah. Assuming that any creature in the universe uh, would, at the very least, uh, know of binary code. Well, yeah. And it's the simplest code, like zeros and ones. Right. Dots and dashes, you know, whatever. So, so that's kind of the simplest form of communication. So, um, that's that, the best that they was, could that, come up with. That was originally what the foundation of computer language was. No, it still is. Still yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, binary. Yeah, zeros and ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in 1974, they sent this message from a big radio telescope in Puerto Rico, and they sent it out. Um, uh, towards a global star cluster called M13. And uh, when, after they sent it out, they set up, you know, one of these radio telescopes to listen for it. And basically the code, you know, it's just binary code, but what, what it would look like if you decoded it was this rectangular image that at the bottom had kind of the Milky Way to, to let them know where where the message came from, mm-hmm. right, if they know anything about the stars. Mm-hmm. And then it had, like, a symbol of a human, and then it had other binary uh, dots and dashes that kind of uh, uh, communicated the DNA sequence of a human, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of different information here, but in this tall rectangular symbol, if you decoded it, that's what it looked like. And it's important this tall rectangular symbol you'll see here in a few few seconds here. Mm-hmm. So in in uh, 2001, a rectangular crop circle, you know, still called a crop circle, but it was a rectangle, appeared in Hampshire, England, 
and it's known as the Arecibo response. So Arecibo is the name of the message that Carl Sagan and the researchers sent out. So now, well, that, that's the years, uh, the Arecibo Observatory is in Puerto Rico. Exactly, exactly. So they sent it from there. And in 2001, 40-something years later, this rectangular crop circle shows up in a field in Hampshire, England, and they call it now the Arecibo response. Wow. It's super cool. So the message in the field, and I'll show you these images. I'll put both the uh, Arecibo message that, that was sent out and then the response that showed up in the field. It looks just like the message that Sagan sent out. But instead of having the Milky Way at the bottom, it has some other galaxy that we don't and we don't know what it is. And then instead of having a human, it has like this classic alien like creature, you know, with the big head and the big eyes. Mm -hmm. And then it's slightly different throughout. Um, And there, you know, different different uh, DNA sequence that we can't recognize at all and things like that. Okay. So super cool. And and what's what's the scuttlebutt on this uh, uh, Recibo response uh, uh, crop formation? What what is said about that? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. So people, a lot of folks came out and said, "Oh, this is fake because it's got this picture of an alien in the middle of it, and aliens don't look like that." <laughs> I'm telling you, Bill. But, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, and it's kind of like, you know, folks, then folks came forward and said, well, you know, some of these people who claim that they've been abducted and stuff like that, this is how they always describe the aliens. And then some of the other skeptics came forward and said, yeah, but some of them were abducted after there was a movie showing something like that. So it's kind of like a chicken and the egg. Right, right. Now, what I think is really cool about um, this crop circle, although it's a rectangle, and some of the other sophisticated ones that showed up after this, when the scientists looked at the shape itself up close in the field, they talk about it as if it was done like a screen printing into the crops, meaning that somehow there was like a giant stencil above the crops and then some type of energy knocked down all of the crops in super crisp lines along the edges of what would be some kind of stencil. Yeah. Which is I thought was super cool. Yeah, I mean it's just it's mesmerizing to see. Yes. And there are effects on the crops as well. Uh, that have been documented over and over again. Exactly. Like the, the scientists that look into what could have done, you know, this, the, the closest they come to is some type of uh, microwave energy. Yeah. So like if you could somehow hang a stencil over this area and then hit it, hit the crops with some type of targeted microwave energy, it causes like the joints in the crops to kind of uh, uh, burst outward and the crop to fall down, mm-hmm. but not not in a bent over way, like in a way where it's 360 degrees, like the joint just fails. Mm-hmm. And when they can only recreate that with uh, intense microwave energy, which yep. I think is super interesting. Well, and it, then, it is yeah, super interesting because... Uh, now we're immediately away from guys with some skills stomping with boards around in a field. Exactly. What do they have, microwave generators with them now? Exactly. Walking exactly. around out there for four hours in the middle of the English countryside? Exactly. Now, now what's also interesting um, about this Arecibo response in 2001 is it appeared in... Uh, a, a field very close to one of these large uh, uh, steerable radar stations where days earlier another crop circle had appeared. Mm-hmm. And when I post the image, you'll see from an aerial view, you'll see the rectangular Arecibo response. And then pretty close to it is another type of crop circle that appeared a few days earlier. Now, what's totally interesting, though, is that the construction of the crop circles 
is totally different. So the first one that appeared doesn't exhibit any of the like stencil screen printing like characteristics. So I thought that's super cool, too. So maybe the first one, for example, is a hoax. And then the second one shows up a few days later when you can still see the first one. And the scientists look at it and say, this was made in a totally different way. Yeah. Really, really interesting, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, we won't get into it. Maybe one day we could have a little talk about the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, yeah, that's actually on my list. Too. Yeah, and uh, that uh, microburst of energy that came through that cloth, front and back, by the way, so it was like an explosion, yeah. boom, all sides were affected. Boom. It just barely marked the very outer, outer edge of the cloth. Right. Uh, not affecting the rest of it, just the very outer edge of the cloth all the way around. And, of course, we know that the gentleman who was originally taking a picture of the shroud, he didn't see it until he was doing the negative plates. Uh, when he was developing the film, the image showed up. Right. It just all of this stuff, you know, when you talk about that golden, uh, what'd you call it again, Kev? Golden, golden ratio. Ratio. Uh, all of these intricate little things that we learn about over time, you know, it's like we get little snippets of stuff, uh, are woven into many of these mysterious things that are uncovered, you know? No doubt about it, yeah. And uh, to me, I mean, you know where I stand. There's no getting away from the divinity of this creation, uh, a mastermind of knowledge and wisdom in all things. Yeah. Dipping his hand into this and that, and we're left to be puzzled by it. Like, wow, this is fantastic. You know, it just it just blows my mind. I see the divine in everything, so it's no surprise to me. Right, right. You know, I, I mean, I think definitely, Bill, but I, I also think going back directly to the crop circles, it's very similar to Bigfoot to me, where... You know, there's definitely some hoaxers out there running around with big shoes on their feet and suits on and stuff like that. Like, yep, you know, yep. they've come forward and done it. And with the crop circles, there's definitely some hoaxers as well. Yeah, there's no doubt, doubt about it. They've come forward. But it does seem that there's something else going on there. But I did find myself wrestling the whole time with crop circles. You know, whenever I've looked at them, you know, wrestling with the scientific uh, theory that actually comes out of, uh, you know, from an old uh, uh, theologian. I don't know if you've ever heard of Occam's razor. Uh -huh. You know, that the concept is that, that um, it was created by this Franciscan friar named William of Occam back in like 1287 or something. But he, the the... Occam's razor is often quoted as saying that the simplest explanation is most likely the right one. Yeah. And, and you know, with the crop circles, it's like you can take it anywhere you want, but at the same time, there's probably some other simple explanation. I don't know what it is, mm -hmm. but I really wrestled with Occam's razor when I was doing the research on crop circles, you know. Yeah, well, so having said that, just what little you know— uh, what would one of the simplest uh, ideals be in the formation of a crop circle? If you could go by Occam's razor and just come up with some initial idea of simplicity, what would you say? Well, well definitely the round ones, right? Like if you had uh, two two-by-fours with a rope uh, like tied through either end of them so you could hold them in your hand, you could hold the rope and stand on them and kind of lift them up. Kind of like you'd walk around on buckets when you were a kid, mm -hmm. and and walk on and then and then put a stake in the middle of a circle, and walk around with the rope fully extended, and then head in towards the center of the circle, and make a perfect circle that could be giant, 
with boards tied to your feet. I mean, that definitely people could do that, and it would look unbelievable from the air. Yeah, know? but now, does that address uh, the complexity of some no, of these circles? No, it doesn't. it doesn't address the... The ones that look like they're screen printed either. Like, right. Or yeah. the fact that they appear to have been done with something that had uh, radioactivity. Right. Or, or microwave energy involved in it. Yep. Don't know. So, yeah. you know, we go I, from... I'm going to keep looking at it and see, uh, you know, what else comes up in uh, in uh, later days. But I, I thought it was super interesting. And again, like you, Bill, I remember being a little kid... You know, watching, uh, we've talked about it before, you know, our old pointy-eared friend, Leonard Neboy yep. and his show uh, In Search Of, you know, and he'd be looking at the crop circles and stuff like that, you know. That is super cool. Yeah, now, there's no doubt about it. Uh, there's such remarkable things out there in the creation that, uh, yeah, you know, it just continues to boggle the mind. And speaking of remarkable things, that was a great Peace, Kev. And we're going to have to um, look at that further because there's a lot to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's ongoing. Yeah. But speaking of things fantastic in the creation, I'm going to take our listeners up to British Columbia where a woman named Brenda Wiley who was a former resident of British Columbia, uh, had to say about what she and her husband both saw and encountered. Listen to this. Really Mm -hmm. interesting. My family had a cabin that was constructed on a lake in British Columbia. A cabin which is still there to this day. I don't want to say what lake it was because I would ra- I would rather that a bunch of let me read this because I would rather that a big a bunch of Bigfoot hunters don't start showing up there in the hope of seeing what we saw. This cabin was built by my ancestors and no further building of any sort has been allowed on this lake since they constructed it. It is, in fact, the only man-made artifact in the area for many, many miles. Of course, having never met the man, none of the remaining family could ask any questions about the construction of this cabin and why it had been built in such a remote location. It was passed down to us that my great-granddad was quite the adventurer, as were many who had come to these places so many years ago. There were only a handful of times that any members of our family had been to the cabin with myself, having only been there twice in my lifetime. It was a hand-built, one-room cabin built on a stone foundation. What I saw and why I had contacted you, Bill, was based on the presence of a sluiceway that my great-grandfather had constructed, which led down the hill to the cabin. We had always wondered why he had gone to the trouble to build a sluiceway for water when he lived so close to the lake. Our guess was that the water from the stream was purer, but we will never know. Just up the hill behind the cabin was a creek, which ran through the woods. My great-granddad had constructed a trough out of hand-hewn logs, logs, which was split in half lengthwise, and it ran from the creek down the side of the hill. When the logs of this sluiceway had come to the point where the grade had changed, He had constructed a gradually elevated trestle of sorts to keep the water flowing towards the cabin, where it eventually was directed into a large old wooden barrel. It looked like a low version of an old railway trestle, similar to those seen bridging a gap between mountains over a gorge. 
It was incredibly well-constructed, and we can only imagine the intense labor which had gone into building it at the time. On top of this little trestle was a boxed sluiceway, similar to those used by old gold miners. According to family lore, this was the reason that my ancestors had settled down in this area. The first time I had been there, the barrel was empty, with the reason being that the creek level was too low to make it into the sluice. Apparently, the creek's level changes seasonally based on rainfall, but there wasn't enough water at the time to see it working. Albeit, the setup was still fully intact and functional, with the only missing component being the water. It wasn't until three years later, when we had decided to make our way back to the cabin, that the things which I am about to tell you about had occurred. On the opposite side of the lake, there was an area where we dropped in a small tin boat, and using an electric motor or oars, if needed, made our way across the lake to where the cabin was located. This particular trip was in the late spring or early summer, and when we made our way to the cabin, the sluiceway was working in full swing, with the excess water flowing out of some overflow holes that were made in the top of the barrel. The mere fact that this structure, which had been made over a hundred years ago, was still operational without maintenance, uh, having been done by anyone for decades, was a testament to the men and skills which were present at that time in our nation's history. Now, seeing it full of running water, there were many areas that were wet and muddy from the water rushing down and overflowing this sluice. We had gone inside to get things in order, and my husband, who is no longer with us, as you know, had gone outside to stoke a fire to heat up some canned food that we had brought along. We were actually using two Boy Scout camping kits for all of our cooking and eating needs, and to be honest with you, they worked perfectly well in such situations. After we had eaten, we decided to make our way up the hill to inspect the sluice and see what the creek looked like when it was running at full capacity. This was still the time of year when a lot of water was making its way down from the mountains, passing through the area. We were trudging up the hill and had begun to walk wide of a muddy area where the water had been overflowing the sluice when John, that's her husband, looked down and said, Oh my God, look at these footprints. As the two of us stood there looking down, we saw large human-like prints, which were almost 20 inches long, and there were quite a few of them. Some were sunk very deep into the mud, being indiscernible to the eye, while others were clearly visible, being made where the ground was just moist enough and not water-soaked. John had immediately said that they were Bigfoot tracks as we began to look around us. I know, speaking for myself, that I had an immediate sense of fear when he had said the word Bigfoot, but I kept it to myself as we continued to make our way up the hill to the creek. About another 50 feet up the hill, we came to a point where something had apparently lost its footing and slid for a bit down the muddy slope. There was no mistaking it. It was about a 10-foot-long smear from a body having hit the ground, and at the end of it, we could see what must have been heels of the feet, having dug into the mud to bring whatever had slid to a stop. The slide was about four feet wide, which to us was indicative that something quite large had done the sliding. As we made our way up to the creek, there were tracks everywhere, coming down one side of the creek, which stopped at a certain point, and were visible on the other side, showing us that this thing, uh, that this was the point where this thing had crossed over. 
Neither of us were hardcore hunters, but it was obvious to us that something very big was walking along the creek and had followed the sluice down to the cabin. It's funny how the pieces of a puzzle come together. I say this because one of the steps leading up to the cabin's door was snapped cleanly in two, and the wood did not appear to be rotten, which we now believe was done by this enormous creature stepping on it. That night, I have to say that we were both more than a little bit creeped out by the thought of this monster being around the cabin, if it was, in fact, a Bigfoot. We decided that in the morning we were going to leave well enough alone. We hadn't done any more walking around in the area after having seen what I just described to you. At about 6 p.m., I was inside of the cabin, putting some of our stuff together, and John was outside heating up some food on the fire. We had two aluminum pots, which we used when camping, and the handles obviously got very hot when sitting on the fire. John had just stirred the franks and beans and stepped into the cabin, closing the door behind him. He was only inside for maybe three minutes, if that, giving me a hand gathering everything together. When we heard a strange kind of scream or deep squeal, followed by what sounded like one of the pots clanking against a rock and the two of us froze. I whispered to John, What was that? He grabbed his gun and, stepping slowly towards the door, opened it. I was standing behind him, peering over his shoulder as we looked and saw one of the pots dumped into the fire. The other was knocked out of it, with the sauerkraut dumped in the dirt next to the fire pit. We stood there in the entrance, waiting and watching for about 15 minutes, Seeing and hearing nothing more, we slowly stepped outside. At this point, I was completely freaked out, and although John was doing a good job of hiding it, he was freaked as well. We stood with our backs to the lake, facing both the fire pit and the cabin, watching and listening for anything to move, but we didn't see or hear anything. We walked closer to the pit, and saw there were prints. The ground was much harder there, yet soft enough for something of apparently great weight to leave impressions, of which there were several. We could also see what looked like a smear of a print where the beast, having burned its hand, twisted and turned away to run, dropping the pot in the process. Well, that's all it took. We packed up our gear into the boat and left in less than an hour and have never been back since. Having seen nothing as far as a physical being, to me what we had seen was everything. There was no doubt whatsoever as to what was wandering around this cabin and the surrounding area. My husband and I had both discussed that if they were there now, they must have been there when my great-granddad was there. How could you live alone in a remote place such as this with no form of rescue or aid should something happen? was beyond our comprehension. This Bigfoot obviously had a keen sense of our arrival. Either that or it was drawn in by the unusual smell of our food, which was definitely something out of the ordinary. Having seen its prints by the sluice prior to doing any cooking, It also seemed to have a fascination with the cabin and the sluiceway as well. What do you think of that, Kev? You know, that's that's super cool, Bill. But, you know, for for a reason to me, I've told you before, right? Like when I lived out in Spokane, Washington, we used to go up to a lake called Christina Lake in British Columbia. 
And my buddy had a cabin on the far side of Christina Lake, which you could only get to by boat. Mm. And um, it was so beautiful out there and so dark, like literally you could not see your hand in front of your face. And the way we got the water from that was a sluiceway um, that ran down to the cabin from up from a stream up beyond behind the cabin. And the water was so clean you could drink it right from the stream because there's nothing up there. What else was there but your friend's cabin? There were other cabins there, though. So, like, immediately I was thinking, oh, it's Christina Lake. But there are other cabins, but they're definitely, you can't develop on Christina Lake. Um, and, in fact, it's very difficult to buy a place on Christina Lake. They're, they're, when I was there last, they're basically willed down in each family. Wow. So I wonder so, if there's a similar situation a little more sparse I'm somewhere sure. else. It's so rural, you know, yep. and, and Christina Lake wasn't that far from Spokane because we drove up there, you know, with with little kids at the time, and it wasn't that big of a deal other than, like, we had to get in a rowboat with an outboard and go all the way across the lake and pull the boat up on the side, hike up the hillside, and go into this cabin that only had, uh, you know, it had propane lights in it so it had a big propane tank that they had to they had like a barge that came around once in a while and filled up the propane Uh, and then it had like lamps in the house that were kind of like the old coleman lanterns that we would camp with okay but they looked like lamps but they had a mantle on them you know kind of like the antique gas lamps that we know we were we're not old enough to have had in our houses but if you look at those old gas fixtures, whether they were a chandelier or not, they had a mantle on them, like, like a Coleman lantern. You know. Oh, I didn't know they had a mantle then. I, I think thought they that did. Was, I think uh-huh. they had like a primitive mantle there. So. Because I saw a gas lantern uh, uh, being installed on the front of a, a, a rock face on a home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when it was done, it was just a gas tube, and when they cracked it, they lit it, and that thing stayed lit. Yeah, they do that here, too. Like, they put them in as a lantern. Right. But, you know, they, I'm sure when you saw that one, it doesn't throw much light. It looks cool. You know, it's right. like a candle inside of a glass thing. But as you know, like real gas gas uh, lamps, they threw a good amount of light. You know, more than flames. Right. You know, more right. than candles. Well, you so. know, it takes us back. We're getting away from Bigfoot here. But yeah. it takes us back to why when there were candle lamps... Uh, that they put those reflective plates behind them to try yes. to get a little more light yes. out of them, you know. But I mean, so it's special to me. One, it's super cool. But then it's like, wow, it really touches close to my heart because I have these great memories of being in this cabin on Christina Lake. And and it is absolutely the kind of place where, you know, you would see a Bigfoot. <laughs> you know, I never got to see one, but And also the they had a sluiceway there. They did. Yeah, that's how they got the water. Uh, and why do you think, well, now, uh, she's talking about the sluiceway having been built 100 years ago, but she could never understand why you could have probably dipped a cup in the lake back then and drunk the water. Well, but don't forget, it's a lot colder, and it's, like, naturally filtered, because a lot of it's melting snow, Yeah, you know, from up above. So I remember the water was ice cold, and although the lake might have been clean, I wouldn't have drank out of the lake. But I felt fine drinking out of the stream because these streams, when they're running down, you know, there's a lot of natural filtering going on. Yeah. Whereas in the lake, you know, if something's sitting on the top of the lake, it's sitting on the top of the lake where you dip your cup, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the difference. And it's definitely more refreshing. You know, yeah, I mean, there's it no doubt about it. I mean, out who wouldn't want to have a glass of water from a spring? Yeah. You know. You remember, Kev, down by West Meadow Creek, there were those natural aquifers? Yes, absolutely. And I used to go over there, and uh, there was a time in my life when I used to take a milk crate with four one-gallon milk jugs uh, and go to one of the ones over in the head of the harbor and fill up the water from there. Yeah. Yeah, I used to take it home and use that as my drinking water. Wow. And uh, that probably explains why you have an extra toe on each foot. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so that's that's the story, man. You know, and pretty good detective work. Not that 
it took much, but you have to observe, right? Yeah. They saw where this thing slid or something apparently lost yeah, its yeah, footing yeah, and slid super in the cool. mud. So uh, I, I would imagine there are other people finding things like that around if you're willing to observe, though. You know what I mean? Yep. So the powers of observation never leave us, you know, but yep. you've got to be willing to do it, you know? Yep. No doubt about it. Uh, so there you have it. I mean, I thought that was a pretty uh, interesting account. And again, kudos uh, to our listeners. Uh, I'm always talking to people. And uh, the amount of stories, uh, encounters uh, that are going on out there are virtually endless. I no, mean, yeah. you know, it would take a very long time. I don't think you ever get to the bottom of it because they're ongoing, you know? Yep. No uh, but it's very interesting, very interesting Super indeed. Super cool. I like it. I like it a lot. Yep. yep. So what do we got today, bro, in our listener yeah, mail speaking segment? speaking of listeners, we got some good mail here. Um, so the first letter comes in from Steve. And Steve, believe it or not, is in Hampshire in the UK, which mm. happens to be where a lot of these crop circles are. Coincidentally, awesome. isn't that cool? Yeah. Also, let's uh, before you give a read Steve's mail. Let's give Steve a shout out. And Steve, if you or your buddies know anything about uh, crop circles in your region or area. You yeah. make sure you get back to us on that. That's what I was going to say. Hey, Steve, like if you've ever seen one, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. So Steve's from Hampshire or Hampshire in the UK. And uh, he says, I've recently become a firm fan of the cast since hearing Bill on Sasquatch Chronicles. And we love Sasquatch <laughs> Chronicles, too. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Is that Spot or is that you, Bill? <laughs> That's me. I'm hungry. Uh, and he says, uh, I've been interested in the hairy man and cryptozoology for many years, probably since watching The Legend of Boggy Creek uh-huh. and the creature from the Black Lake. <laughs> cool stuff. And he says, absolutely years ago. He says he's almost 53 now. I'm right there with you, buddy. <laughs> he says, I've never seen a Bigfoot for real, but we have had sightings in the UK, apparently of these cryptids dating back centuries. I'm a firm believer in the big guy and would love to see one, even though I'd probably crap my panties and turn tail and skedaddle. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, me too, Steve. <laughs> no, offense, no offense, Steve, but what are you doing with panties on? <laughs> <laughs> and Steve says, just want to tell you guys that I love the show and to keep doing what you're doing. Thanks and kindest regards. Well, thank you, Steve. And again, right back if you uh, have seen any crop circles or have anything else to add to the crop circle story. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And I guarantee you, Kev, you'll get back to us with something because uh, that countryside over there is not uh, overly populated. No, no. And uh, there's a lot of hill and dale, and I'm sure him and his buddies uh, uh, have uh, some inside dope on the uh, crop circle phenomena. Hey, maybe he's got some pictures of him and his buddies strapping some boards to their feet. In their panties? (laughs) I may not want to see that one. (laughs) Sorry, Steve. Sorry, Steve. All right, the next one also comes in from the UK, from Alan. And Alan is in, I don't know how to pronounce this, maybe Witness, W-I-D-N-E-S in the UK. And he says, love the show. Finally caught up on all the episodes. I think you should look into the recent Mothman sightings in Chicago. Would love to hear your take on it. Thanks, Alan. Hmm. So I don't know, Bill. Have you heard about these sightings of Mothman in Chicago? No, I I read the email, obviously. Yeah. And uh, I was going to kick it back to you, like you know, maybe we should investigate Mothman's reoccurrence. I did a quick search of it, and apparently, Mothman has popped up. So. I'm definitely going to take a look at it, Alan, so thank you. I I hadn't heard about it until I saw your note. 
No, I didn't either. And how many little uh, snippets or clues have we got from the listeners? Oh, tons. I mean, this yeah, is a listener show. I mean, that's one of the things I love about it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if people really realize that we, uh, the, uh, my chiming in with people is not just because I like to talk to the people, but I get a tremendous amount of data uh, talking to our listeners, and many of you I've spoken to are listening to this podcast, and you know who you are. Uh, but it's a tremendous outpouring of great information out there that you can glean from people in an hour phone call. You know, you just talk and chewing the fat, and you're getting incredible information. No doubt about it. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. So speaking of chewing the fat, we got a letter, Bill, as you know, from our friend Duel in Scotland. I love Duel. And Duel was listening to our uh, episode about the Tower of London, and he writes, another auditory masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Duel. We, we love you, and we love your sense of humor, too. Uh-huh. And he says, hope this finds you well. We're having the same kind of winds as Kemp described, along with rain as winter draws on. Mm -hmm. All that faded away to be replaced by a big smile on a dismal Monday morning as I was called out by you. Thanks, mm -hmm. man. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to interrupt his letter here because he talks about the dismal weather in Scotland, which is... Uh, you know, I, I know you haven't been to Scotland, Bill, but it is like, I mean, the weather is just awful. And then I I had a funny experience, you know, cue the James Bond experience, uh, James Bond music for our listeners, because whenever I talk about how much I travel, they talk about James Bond. But I was <laughs> the first time I was in New Zealand, I was in Auckland, New Zealand, the capital there. And New Zealand, like this was in the summertime in New Zealand. I was walking from my hotel to a meeting, you know, at the Secret Service there. No, just yeah. kidding. And, um, <laughs> and it literally, Bill, was hot and sunny, like I needed sunscreen. This is like a 15-minute walk. It rained and thundered, and then it snowed. Yeah. And I was like, what the heck? Like, what's going on here? And then I got to my meeting and they said, well, you know, when the, the you know, that uh, New Zealand was originally uh, uh, a Scottish colony. And I was like, no, I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, because apparently the weather, it's the, the only place that has weather as bad as Scotland is New Zealand. <laughs> so they moved there? Oh, well, they just took it over, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was like. <laughs> So I don't think they picked it, you know. Hey, listen, can we have a T-shirt made that says Duel is cool? I, I like that. I like How that. do you like that? So or, Duel, uh, anyway, back to his letter, because it is a good letter. He says, after some depth, in-depth research, I found that beef eaters, right? We were talking about the Tower of London and the beef eater guards, right. may be called as such due to part of their wages being paid in chunks of beef. Huh. Yeah, and he said this practice was apparently carried out till the 1800s. He says, sounds legit to me. If one has a big cow to get rid of, give it away. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, I also like the name Yeoman for Queen's Guard. When I was drafted to ships, the signals office comprised a Yeoman and a Bunter. The yeoman was in charge of flags and lights, and the bunter blasted out Morse code at an amazing rate, yeah. even when talking to someone. Good times. Best wishes to you and yours in these trying times. Duel. Yeah, Duel's a good guy. Yeah, I can uh, tell. I wish he was closer by. I'd, I'd love to hang out and have a pint or a peaty scotch with you, Duel. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could show him how to break down a Walter PPK on the table. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of throwing darts, we'll see who can hit the red center with the El Walter. There you go. I like it. <laughs> I might have one of those. Just saying. I definitely have one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill. Well, that's the last letter this week. I want to thank everybody for writing in. Um, we, uh, we really, I mean, again, this podcast is, 
is uh, uh, built on the foundation of a lot of the feedback and ideas we get from you and the accounts we get from all of you. So keep them coming. And speaking of keeping things coming, keep those five-star reviews coming. We really appreciate it. And it's really important that you leave those five-star reviews from your favorite podcast player because it brings more listeners to the podcast. And if Bill and I have more listeners then we're able to improve the quality of the podcast for all of you. So thank you so much. Keep the five-star reviews coming. Kev, what was the location of Steve's uh, county in uh, England? Uh, was that Ham- one Hampshire? Let me Ham- check. Hampshire, right? Hampshire. Or Hampshire, I think. Hampshire. Well, yeah. well, let me close with saying this, my dear brethren. And in particular... May I address all of you English blokes? If you find yourself walking through Hampshire and walk upon the formation of a crop circle, may I remind you of this? Always carry more gun than you think you're gonna need. Sleep tight. (laughs) 